a British TV podcast with Chrissy and Ryan. News, reviews, what's on TV this week, DVD releases, and special features all about British TV. Hello and welcome to the British TV podcast, show number 34. I'm Ryan in Seattle. I'm Chrissy in Seattle. How are you doing, Chrissy? I'm doing well. How was your adventure in Canada? It was fantastic. We just were expecting poor weather and didn't get it. It was overcast, but still dry and not too hot, just like we like it. And we walked our little feet off from one end of downtown Vancouver to the other and saw Eddie Izzard, um, who was in rare form. I would say he was the funniest I'd seen him through the show since the first time I saw him live, which was 12 years ago. He's been doing this show a long time. And I saw it when it hit Seattle, which was two years ago now. And some of the topics were the same, but he gets bored easily. So he really moves through material and revises and dumps old stuff. So I I didn't feel like I was seeing anything I'd seen before. It was really fun. We enjoyed it immensely. Cool. Passed out some flyers for the show. So I hope... This show? Yes, this oh, show. Great. Well, well, for the YouTube channels, I maintain dedicated to Eddie, but it had a little blurb for us, too. Oh, cool. So I'm hopeful at least one person or two or three are listening. Hello, if I met you up in Vancouver. Yeah, I'm going to be down in San Francisco next weekend and oh. at a convention, and I will hand out flyers, so who knows? There may be new listeners listening to us from that. Jealous. I, I think love I've... San Francisco. It's well, my favorite Well, I'll be American actually in Santa city. Clara, so I actually won't be in the city itself. Oh, I mentioned in last week's podcast that viewers in Britain would get to see the series finale of Lost a few days after it was shown in the United States. In fact, they saw it transmitted simultaneously with the West Coast showing on Sunday night on Sky One, which of course made it 5 a.m. Monday (laughs) morning in Britain. Only 68,000 Britons foregoed sleep to watch it then, but with time shifting, the numbers went up to 600,000 viewers. Broadcasters in Italy, Spain, Portugal, Israel, Turkey, and Canada also simulcast the Lost Finale. Now, we've been advocating for a while for day-and-date transmission of shows in Britain and the United States, but this is a first, and obviously an attempt by the networks to cut down on what they call spoilers, but we know better as piracy. Arr. That's my pirate, arr. Yeah. Interesting having a 5 a.m. broadcast there. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I had a friend there who used to get up and watch American baseball at night. So hopefully we'll start seeing more of this. Although I'm disappointed that nobody is going to show Eurovision here. At least I couldn't discover. I think some Hmm. obscure satellite channels, the international channels, maybe have done it in the past because I think there was pubs you could go to and watch it. But you can stream it. You can watch it live on the Internet. So I suppose there's that. But BBC America, you're messing to bat here. This week's episode, we have news, what's on British TV this week, what's running in the United States, DVD releases, a feature on the Eurovision Song Contest, listener feedback, and a post-show wrap-up of Ashes to Ashes. All the spoilers will be at the end of the show. You have nothing to fear by listening now. So news. ITV1's Married Single Other will not be back. The channel decided not to commission a second season after the series ended up with only 4 million viewers when it was finished back in March. So, too bad for that. The success of television shows overseas, including Doctor Who, as well as the sale of formats of The Office, Top Gear, and Strictly Come Dancing, have helped BBC Worldwide to record profits this year of around £140 million. 
The rebooted Doctor Who continues to be one of the worldwide's biggest money spinners and has been sold to more than 50 territories with over 3.3 million DVDs and more than 7 million action figures sold in 2009 alone. Yeah, I think I saw it was number 14 on iTunes, too, a while ago. So shouldn't that tell a network something bigger than BBC America? That's... Well, BBC America paid to get the rights for it. I mean, they, they yeah. wanted it more than sci-fi did. So, And they're doing fairly well with it, although it's not on this weekend. There's also a new CEO of BBC Worldwide, and it is a former executive at AMC. Oh. One of the people who oversaw them acquiring Mad Men and all that. So now he's trying to take over BBC Worldwide and keep them going. Of course, Strictly Come Dancing is, or So You Think You Could Dance, as it's called in this country, that is a huge moneymaker for them, since that's a very highly rated show on ABC. And the BBC gets a check every week. You, yes, you, Chrissy, mm-hmm. could have been the proud owner of Black Adder's Codpiece from the 1986 series Black Adder 2. Oh, I look good in a codpiece, too. The prop worn by Rowan Atkinson in the classic Elizabethan set sitcom was among those up for auction last weekend and got a winning bid of 850 pounds. Hmm. Oh, I'd have rather spent that money on a ticket to go over to the UK, but oh well. Could have flown first class for that much. Yeah. Some changes for venerable ITV1 Soap Coronation Street next week. First, it will begin broadcasting in high definition. But more importantly, it will be moving to 9 p.m. temporarily to accommodate mega-hit Britain's Got Talent and its live shows beginning May 31st. So expect boffo ratings. Because they'll have a two-hour Britain's Got Talent, then 30 minutes of Coronation Street, and then the uh, results show afterwards. So ITV's got a considerable block going into next week. So what's on TV for the week of May 25th to June 1st? Wednesday, the National Movie Awards 2010 is on ITV1, hosted by James Nesbitt. Not quite as good as the MTV Movie Awards, which are always my favorites. Waterloo Road is also back on BBC One. The conclusion of Martin Amos's Money, starring Mark Frost, is on BBC Two. Thursday, have I got news for you on BBC One, has guest host Bruce Forsyth, Brucey, and guest panelists Ross Noble and Laura Salon. It's followed by a repeat of Would I Lie to You, the celebrity panel show that tries to determine fact from fiction on BBC One. It's hosted by Gavin and Stacey's Rob Bryden. Have you seen Would I Lie to You? A while ago. Yeah, someone with Jer- John Barrowman. That's right. David Mitchell is one of the yeah. uh, captains there. That's a funny show. All at Sea concludes on ITV1. You have been watching with Charlie Brooker is on Channel 4 later than usual at 11.05 to accommodate their week-long million-pound drop. Friday Night with Jonathan Ross, Friday on BBC One, has stars from Sex and the City and Precious star Gabore Sidibi. Saturday Night, Doctor Who finally moves back to 7 p.m. with part two of the current adventure Cold Blood. Hooray for Mira Sayal for becoming a contemporary companion and getting to ride in the TARDIS. She was, her character was very excited. Oh. But it was neat because up to that point, you kind of thought, she's kind of a wasted character. You know, this is sort of a very typical Doctor Who plot of, you know, the scientists here. You're like, well, some of them will die and some of them will, will say goodbye to the Doctor at the end. And then suddenly she's like, no, 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 I'm coming with you. And she got to ride in the TARDIS. The ratings last week 
for the Hungry Earth were the lowest since the series came back. Ooh. Partially because it was on so early in the afternoon, and they had really, really nice weather. Mm. And so people were out enjoying the sunshine. But it doesn't really make any difference anymore. When you have time shifting and DVRs and the repeats, they, when they do the consolidated ratings, it usually bumps up about $2 million. So it's not like if you miss Doctor Who, that's it. You never get to see it again, like you know, in the seventies. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the instant overnight ratings aren't quite as important as they used to be. Doctor Who Confidential will be shown right afterwards on BBC Three at seven fifty p.m. At eight p.m., it's the moment that you and Ryan have been waiting for: the Eurovision Song Contest two thousand ten, live from Oslo, Norway. We'll have a feature explaining all about Eurovision in a few minutes. You're not waiting for Eurovision? I've never seen it. Oh, you can watch it live on the internet. Yep. On Sunday on Sky One, the latest Terry Pratchett adaptation, part one of Going Postal, is on at 6 p.m. Richard Coyle and David Suchet star. It concludes on Bank Holiday Monday at the same time. On ITV One, another mystery for Lewis, Falling Darkness. Monday... The Secret Diaries of Miss Anne Lister is on BBC Two. It tells the story of Anne Lister, who lived from 1791 to 1840. She was a Yorkshire landowner, industrialist, traveler, and diarist. She was also a lesbian, and this drama is based on her extensive four-million-word journal. And it stars Maxine Peake. So funny about Maxine Peaks. Whenever I see her, I think, is that Julia Hines? And then I realize, no, it's Maxine Peake because they look a little similar, but Maxine has a, just a little bit sharper features than Jessica. But they could definitely play sisters, I think, hmm. especially in a period piece where they had the similar hairdos and similar. Yeah, they're very close and both excellent actresses, too. Cool. The Graham Norton Show on BBC One has guests Chris Rock, Fringe star Joshua Jackson, and X-Factor chart topper Diane Vickers, who also played Little Voice in the revival that also starred Leslie Sharp and Mark Warren. Ah! There's, in fact, if you go on YouTube, there are quite a few behind-the-scenes vignettes based on that show. Every week they'd put up a few showing rehearsals, casting, taking the publicity photos, first night. A little voice? A little voice, yeah. So that was kind of fun because I desperately wished I could see it, starring two of my favorite actors, and I couldn't, but at least I got to watch that online, so that was nice. On Tuesday, Luther with Idris Elba continues on BBC One. La La Land with Mark Wooten finishes up on BBC Three. On BBC America this week, Wednesday, there's Top Gear, The Inbetweeners, and Peep Show. Friday, Not Going Out, Gavin and Stacy, and Friday Night with Jonathan Ross. Saturday, there's no new Doctor Who episode this oh. week because of the Memorial Day weekend holiday, but there's a marathon of repeats all day. So from this point on, they will be three weeks behind BBC One's broadcasts, since they're not taking a break this year. Monday, new episodes of Top Gear. Tuesday, more of the second season of Ashes to Ashes. But why, oh why, BBC America, couldn't you show Eurovision Saturday night? Oh well, we've got some Doctor Who reruns at least. Debuting Saturday on HBO is The Special Relationship, written by Peter Morgan and, again, starring Michael Sheen as Tony Blair, as he did in Morgan's The Deal and The Queen previously. This movie focuses on Blair's relationship with Bill Clinton, played here by Dennis Quaid. 
And you should also check out recent episodes of 30 Rock, where Michael Sheen has guest starred as Liz Lemon's would-be future husband named Wesley Snipes. Oh, now that might get me to actually check it out. I love Michael Sheen. He's lovely. They're on on demand, which I know you don't get, but they're also, you can probably see him on Hulu. He's very funny. Sunday, Showtime continues The Tudors, starring Jonathan Rhys-Meyers. The Independent Film Channel has the Johnny Vegas comedy series Ideal on Friday and Tuesday. On Adult Swim on Friday night, it's The Mighty Boosh at 1.30 a.m. You know, I've been listening to The Mighty Boosh's radio series again, which preceded their television series like so many things do over there. And it's quite excellent. I, I strongly urge you to buy the CDs online. And Is have- it just one series? They did one series, six episodes, but it really bears listening to more than once. It's it's fun. It's and it doesn't they didn't mind too much of it to redo in the television series. Little bits here and there, but the the first episode was nothing like anything in the series. They were riding in helicopters and really making use of being on radio. Heating sound. I love Bush the first time I saw it. I just I kind of just love that some crazy surreal stuff going on. One of the first retcoms I remember in my consciousness was No Honestly, because it was on PBS and my mom liked it. So when I saw them standing in front of the curtain in the first series addressing the audience, that immediately reminded me of that in my mind. And so, yeah, I was hooked too immediately. Well, as we've talked in the past, you know, why are sitcoms and British sitcoms, in particular BBC sitcoms, so good? And that's because, in fact, radio gives them the sort of training league to find the really good stuff and move it to television. And it's a lot of our favorite comedies did start out on radio. And I guess there, it just pays woeful, woefully low too in the radio. If you take all into account how long it takes people to write their own series and then produce them. The little Britain boys said that they probably could have made more working as a waiter in a halfway decent restaurant per hour than they did for writing their two series. But it gets you a national radio audience. If you're on radio Four. That's something to be said for that. And again, you can put out CDs, you can have books, you can, and then of course you might actually hit the pot of gold and get a TV series. It's certainly better than trying to get a pilot going. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, you watch Charlie Brooker sometime, you want to see how to make a pilot or not make a pilot. And our last thing is Merlin is preempted this week on the Sci-Fi Channel because of the holiday weekend. DVD releases. George Gently, Series 2, is now available. Set in 1960s, this police drama stars Martin Shaw and Lee Ingleby, whom we profiled way back in show three. Waiting for God, season five, the BBC comedy starring Graham Crowden and Stephanie Cole is available. It's set in a retirement home, and I once called it Moonlighting Goes Geriatric. Crowden, as a wallet heart retiree who refuses to be put out to pasture quietly, and his relationship with Stephanie Cole's character who lives next door to him, is the basis of it. And when they aren't fighting, they try to pull on something over the operators of the retirement home. And there's also a box set containing the entire series available as well. And for those of you with really deep pockets, for a $350 list price, I talk about airfares to Britain, mm. you can get the complete All Creatures Great and Small, a whopping 28-disc set about country vets starring Christopher Timothy, Robert Hardy, and good old Peter Davison.
So our feature this week is on the Eurovision Song Contest. So that was ABBA with their hit song Waterloo, but did you know it originally won the Eurovision Song Contest in 1974? This year is the 55th annual Eurovision Song Contest, put on by the European Broadcasting Union, live from Oslo, Norway. 39 countries now compete for presenting the most popular written song from their country, performed by one of their artists. It has over 100 million viewers all over Europe and Asia. But all people do is complain about how bad it is. How did this bizarre ritual get started and what's it all about? Here's what the Radio Times has to say about this Saturday's broadcast. Live coverage of the 2010 Eurovision Song Contest from Oslo, Norway. Filled with glitter, glamour, dodgy outfits, wacky gimmicks, and singing. The hopes of the UK rest on the young shoulders of Josh Debovi. With Pete Waterman's song, That Sounds Good to Me. Hoping it sounds good to Europe is Graham Norton, back on commentating duties and bringing his own imitable style of wit and wisdom for what the organizers call Europe's favorite TV show. It began in 1956 mostly as a technical exercise for TV engineers to hook up a show across the entire continent, hence Eurovision. Each country submits one song and originally a jury who then deliver their votes after the presentation of the songs from each of their home countries. Voting is now conducted using phone-in polling and texts. The contest is really about the song, not its performance or presenters, and naturally a country isn't allowed to cast any votes for itself. The rather jokey reputation the contest has is due to some of the mindless and instantly forgettable songs which have won in some years. Since you have to create a song which will be popular in other countries, a certain type of blandness seeps in, which prevents most Eurovision song winners from breaking out into the popular charts. In Britain, the show is now hosted by Graham Norton, taking up the mantle from venerable Terry Wogan, who wasn't afraid to make sarcastic comments on the less-than-great music and production numbers that were unleashed on the unsuspecting public. And Eurovision has picked the wrong winner a few times, too. The most covered Eurovision Song Contest song is Nel Blu di Pinto di Blu, also known as Volare, which only came in fifth the year it appeared. The song has been covered by famous stars such as Frank Sinatra, Cliff Richard, Dean Martin, David Bowie, and many more. Here is the original version from 1958. Volare. There have been some famous singers over the years, Cliff Richard, Julio Iglesias, but the one real worldwide success story in the Eurovision Song Contest is ABBA which took both itself and winning song Waterloo to a hugely successful career. In 1981, Britain won with Bucks Fizz performing 
Making Your Mind Up with their memorable gimmick choreography that included a tearaway skirts that revealed mini dresses underneath. On the girls, of course. Bucks Fizz became very popular with three number one hits on the British pop charts and worldwide sales of 15 million records. The country that wins gets the honor of hosting the following year's broadcast. Uh, last year it was done in Moscow, and Grand Orton complained quite a bit about having to be in Russia, and they're not quite with us in the 21st century when it comes to uh, attitudes toward homosexuals. Oh dear. So this year, it's being held in Norway because the winning entry last year was Alexander Ryback performing Fairy Tale. Years ago, when I was younger, I kind of liked a girl I knew. She was mine, and we were sweethearts. That was then, but then it's true. During the 1990s, for three years running, Ireland won, prompting one of the most hilarious episodes ever of Father Ted, a song for Europe. (laughs) Well, we did it. Don't ask me how, but we did it. (laughs) The answer is really quite simple, Father. Yours was the best song. I suppose so. But, you know, I didn't really think that the audience were going for it. Ah, this plan. I should have been behind you. I had a mistake. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. What's going on? I mean, our song was clearly miles better than theirs. Well, we thought... I mean, for God's sake, it was the same note over and over again. Yes, but we, we admired it. Um... Yeah, well, it, 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 you know, there was the order of a bucket and thrown flying. Your day hadn't happened. There was a spirit the whole way. Exactly. Oh, oh. Fred put it better than I ever could. Yeah, so there. <laughs> Anyone would think you wanted Ireland to lose the next Eurosong contest. Nonsense. Why would we want to do that? Well, I don't know. Maybe because it was costing you too much to stage. Oh, dick, 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 dick. Now, come on. Does that really sound plausible? I think you should just go on now and count your sour grapes before... They hatch. <laughs> Ted and Dougal were selected as the Irish entry and received nil point. <laughs> My lovely horse running through the field. Where are you going with your fetlocks blowing in the wind? I want to shower you with sugar lumps and ride you over fences. I want to polish your hooves every single day and bring you to the horse. My lovely horse, you're a pony no more Running around with a man on your back Like a train in the night Wait, wait That was my first ever ringtone that I put on my first ever cell phone Was my lovely horse Now, did you use their original guitar version or the fantasy dream sequence version? Um, it was one, it was actually a little electronic version for my dinky free phone. But oh, okay. It was the Divine Comedy that performed what was supposed to be them singing. Oh, yes. And I do have that at home somewhere. We'll play out this segment with that. Some countries don't seem to have a chance of ever winning. Witness Luxembourg, which one year scored only 11 points one year. Ten of them were last-minute sympathy votes from Crete. <laughs> 
and Portugal has never won. For a while, the bottom eight countries were then relegated from competition for a year and replaced by the country eliminated the previous year. But now, anybody's welcome under the rather broad definition of Europe, which can include Israel, Turkey, and Russia. They basically have a preliminary round now to come down with the finalists that actually do this. So you won't actually hear 39 songs mm-hmm. on Saturday. It would take forever. And there's even an Eurovision iPhone app that gives you the lowdown on every competitor and offers an in-app store to purchase your favorite songs. Check the Apple iTunes store. But let's get to the heart of it here. What's so special about Eurovision? It's just another musical competition show like Britain's Got Talent or Pop Idol, right? Admittedly, much of the entertainment value of Eurovision is how corny and in bad taste much of it is. You are meant, and even somewhat encouraged, to laugh at it. What distinguishes it from its contemporaries is when somebody goes on an idol and bombs with a what-were-they-thinking bad performance, it really is just an individual who isn't able to judge their talents or ability. But on Eurovision, there is a selection process. Each country has chosen what it must think is its best song, or at least the best chance of winning, and when it goes horribly wrong, it's more than just one talentless person who's at fault. It's a chance to laugh at an entire country at once. Okay, that might come off a bit nationalistic, but everybody can be equally guilty here. We're all in on the joke. It's harmless fun, and because it's live, unscripted television, there's always that excitement that something truly outrageous might happen in front of our eyes. Gee, I'll have to watch this year. I've only seen the highlights of the worst moments ever that Angus Deaton put together for TV about 10 years ago, and it's on one of my YouTube stations. We'll have links oh, in boy. our show notes. And you should check it out, because some of the things are just incredibly crazy. Like, say, the, the Buck Fizz rip-away skirt thing, that became a bit of a cliche after a while. Because thought, oh, we have to have a gimmick. I once bought a Buck's Fizz tape um, for a buck here in the United States in a discount bin just because I needed something to listen to. And I still have it. I like it a lot. But I never really bought anything else or sought out anything from them. They have a really interesting sound that no one else that I know I've had. They've had a lot of members kind of circuit. It's like Menudo. They've had a certain mm-hmm. members kind of come and go, but they originally were formed specifically for, to perform at Eurovision. And they went off and had, you know, a fairly successful career. Not well, ABBA successful, but you know, good enough. So next week, you're going to tell us all about Darren Brown. Darren Brown. Mr. Brown. I have read his books, and I have seen every show he's done. Didn't see the first few specials, but I think probably I've seen the bits recycled. His first three specials got recycled heavily for his first series, which I have. And he's written a book for the general population, which has a bit of his background, his life story, a whole lot of mental exercises, his feelings on 
homeopathic medicines and pseudoscience. He's writing another one now that I think is going to come out before the end of the year. I'll make sure that I know by next week. He's written a couple books for magicians too, and I've read those. And I've seen two videos he did that actually divulged some of his old magic tricks that were meant to be sold to magicians, which I won't do any spoilers for, but... Just suffice it to say, I'm pretty well-schooled in Darren Brown, so I look forward to talking about him next week. You're hired. Listener feedback. Troy writes, I've been enjoying your podcast since you mentioned it last April at NorwestCon. A couple of big names you missed on your list of American actors prominent on British telly are Connie Booth. She played Polly on Faulty Towers and co-wrote Faulty Towers with her then-husband John Cleese. And Rich Fulcher from the Muddy Boosh and Snuffbox. Oh, yeah, Rich. Thanks for the podcast and keep up the excellent work. You should have known that one. <laughs> I'm pointing at you. Yeah, actually, I should have. They For the radio show, they blew a huge portion of their budget flying Rich out. They had met him, and the BBC was kind of, no, we're not going to fly an American over here just to take part in the little radio program. But they really wanted him to play Bob Fossil, so they got him. Cool. I also thought of somebody, and that was Sandra Dickinson. She was in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. And best known now as being Georgina Moffat's mom. Of course, he was once married to Peter Davison. Mm-hmm. Anybody else out there has some others? Let us know at feedback at britishtvpodcast.com. You can also visit our website at www.britishtvpodcast.com, where you have... Headlines, links to show notes and things we've talked about here and what's on TV this week and an archive of our previous 33 shows. So like I said, I will be down in Santa Clara this Memorial Day weekend attending BayCon. It's a science fiction convention there and I'm going to be doing a workshop that we've done for two years now where we make a movie in two hours. You've heard of those 40-hour film challenges? We do the two-hour film challenge. So if you see me down there, say hi and I'll have flyers and I'll be promoting the heck out of this place. I shall be spending a leisurely weekend in uh, Seattle and going out to dinner with Ryan's wife. Because Ryan's the original meat and potatoes fellow, so Kate and I have to go and get our foodie uh, groove on when he's out of town. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So that's all for our main part of our show here. We're going to run the music, and then we're going to talk about the last episode of Ashes to Ashes. So it's going to be full of spoilers. If you have not seen the last episode of Ashes to Ashes, or if you've not seen the last episode of Lost and intend to do that, stop listening now. The show's over. You won't miss anything. I figured it's time to talk about it now. So if you're going to keep listening, great. If not, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Okay, one final warning. There are spoilers to Ashes to Ashes and Lost. Stop listening now if you do not wish to hear them. So last Friday, Ashes to Ashes wrapped up its series with the last ever episode that was meant to explain what's been going on on both Ashes and earlier on Life on Mars. Were comatose police officers actually traveling in time? Who was Gene Hunt? We had questions. The producers had answers. Alrighty. What... I, I, re- I didn't crackpot... watch it, but I read about it. So oh, I well, now, did you have any crackpot theories before that? No. Really? No, I didn't. I saw Life on Mars, and I just took it that it was his psyche creating this other... He was in a coma. 
Well, it wasn't his psyche after all. It, mm-hmm. it was really Gene's. Yep. We find out that the, unlike the American version, which ended with the squad literally on a Gene hunt aboard a space mission to Mars, it was revealed that the members of the East Fenwick Constabulary were all, in fact, dead, and this was a sort of police purgatory. The young policeman that Alex Drake kept seeing, whose face was half missing, turned out to be Gene Hunt himself, killed as a young man on the Queen's Coronation Day. But he'd forgotten this and became the tough guy, the Gary Cooper he'd always imagined himself, and helps other officers who also died in the line of duty. So John Sim did not make an appearance. Sam Tyler, like everyone else, is dead. Now, it's an incredible coincidence that two nights later on Lost, a very similar ending was revealed. Yeah, the events on Lost Island that we've seen for the past six years really happened, but the flash sideways, which have been going on all this season, showed what happened to the castaways if the plane never had crashed on the island turned out to be an afterlife experience. Mm. Although in this case, they were not tempted by Satan, who in Ashes to Ashes was personified in the Jim Keats character. He kept trying to egg on the various officers to not trust Gene, that Gene was against them, that they had to resist his pull, that he was up to no good. And if you believed him, you would follow Jim down, presumably, to hell. But for officers who believed in Gene, their reward was the Railway Arms Pub in Manchester with the mysterious Jamaican landlord. Remember him? Yeah, Nelson. Yes. Who wasn't really Jamaican. No, he revealed once he, he spoke with just an, a Manchester accent to Sam. And he, the Jamaican was just part of the charm of coming, of his happy-go-lucky persona that made people want to go to the pub. Well, it turns out he's sort of a kind of a St. Peter effect, and he would welcome the officers into a bright light, and they were gone. Gene uh, stayed behind, along with Jim Keats. Presumably their battle will just keep on going. And in fact, the series, the last scene of the series is Gene's back in his office and suddenly there's a big kerfuffle out in the squad room and an officer comes in and wants to know, where's his iPhone? Mm -hmm. What's going on? What's happening here? And Gene very slowly opens the door up and says, who are you to come here on my patch? Mm -hmm. Sound familiar. Yes. But does he keep forgetting who he is or does he know and just keep it a big old secret as he's guiding these policeman in there i think he knows now mm-hmm. it was weird to see him kind of brought low because alex basically literally goes out and digs up his body it's part at a farmhouse where he was killed and, and buried in a shallow grave he pulls his revolver on her and he's ready to shoot her to stop her from realizing what the truth is she finds his warrant card mm-hmm. and he's he's literally fr- frozen there like almost still holding the gun quivering because he can't quite process what's going on he couldn't remember it and Jim, of course, is there saying, you know, he's going to tempt you one more time. Don't trust Gene. But Alex is firmly in Gene's side by this point. Well, you know, we saw her get shot at point blank range in the face in the very first episode. So that to me always was m- much less ambiguous than being hit by a car, but still in the hospital on life support. She was in the hospital. She died at 906. And, of course, their little tie-up was her daughter, Molly, and, you know, mm-hmm. she basically was told, don't worry, you know, Molly will be okay. You know, she, she'll she'll keep on going. I thought it was a pretty satisfactory ending. Mm-hmm. I liked it. 
literally Gene was brought down. I mean, he's crumpled up in the squad room at one point. You know, Jim is almost victorious. He's crowing almost like the master. And Alex is like, get up, get up, get up to Gene. And they uh, finish their mission, which is they have to bust some Dutch drug importers. And they end up shooting up the Quattro. So even the Quattro is dead. It's a place that could go both ways because Sam woke up even though he decided to return there later or sort of like the uh, where Harry Potter met Dumbledore. Yeah. After being I suppose you could come back from it. Although, well, maybe he was dead. Maybe Sam was dead the whole time. Now, not everyone gets saved, though, because Viv, the mm-hmm. Black Death Sergeant, he wasn't saved by Jean. And we, more or less, it's an open interpretation because they hadn't revealed it by that point, but Jim kind of seems to absorb his essence hmm. and gene was not able to save viv hmm. so it's not a 100 percent success rate but a very interesting idea i think it, it worked out pretty well and uh, it was a good finale for that show because i had heard that they were accusing gene of having killed sam tyler yes for whatever reason when sam went into the pub they had to fake his death in the world i don't know why mm-hmm. and so they had his car crash and that you know, Gene obviously had fiddled things to make it look like that he had died. Alex kept pressing him and he said, look, you know, we just went for a drink in a pub. That's all that happened at the end. Said, well, what happens next? You know, I said, what? you don't need any more than a drink in a pub. And of course, we literally did see that when the railway arms came into it at the end. But that was the way that Keats was able to tempt Alex by saying, look, you know, he killed Sam Tyler. He's covering this up. You can't trust Gene Hunt. So I don't know why they had to kind of create this reality of killing Sam Tyler in this fake world. but Because I was taking it just from reading these spoilers that maybe it was t- Sam's time to move on and Gene was the custodian of all these souls. And so... Well, that's in fact what happened. But, but, but in order to do that, they had to fake his death. Oh. And that left this paper trail that then Alex was trying to find out what happened to Sam Tyler because Gene wouldn't tell her, well, you're dead. And he went to the afterlife. Mm-hmm. That's what kept Alex suspicious. That's That was the hook that Jim Keats was using on her. Something you wouldn't have seen in, in spoiler reviews was in every shot, there's always a bit of red. There's a filing cabinet or a phone or something. There's something red in every shot. And that was a very interesting visual style and a bit of a clue, too, that, you know, red might denote, of course, hell. Mm-hmm. So I was quite pleased with it. I, I thought it, it did a really good job. It kind of explains the policeman from last year who was also from the present and how he could kill himself in the past and not create a time paradox. Well, there was no time paradox because there wasn't really time travel going on. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the afterlife. You can do whatever you want. And for the record, I, I thought Lost ended too. You know, I think fans get a little annoyed because they come up with their very elaborate theories of what's going on. And when the show delivers something else, they say, well, that sucked. <laughs> or, you know, which may, maybe their theory was better, but I take television for what it is, which is a consumer passive medium. I don't want to see the stories I come up with. I want to see what the creators come up with. In a way, I think the internet has sort of over-empowered people into thinking that they have a voice in TV shows. And it's not like the producers turn a deaf ear. Even back in the 60s and 70s, you you know, people would write letters to producers and say, hey, I like this character, I don't like this character, and I'm sure changes were made on that. But now with blogs and television without pity and forums, you know, there is this sort of instant feedback. 
And I think to be a good TV producer and not go insane, you can't be reading this stuff and reacting to all of it. The opinions are sort of like arseholes. Everyone's got one and they all stink. <laughs> I leave it to, to TV shows and movies to deliver stuff. Now, of course, I could sit there and say, I don't like it. It's not any good. But I kind of draw the line of telling producers what they should be doing. You know, this is what you should be doing to make Doctor Who better or anything else. If you don't like what they're selling, stop buying it. Well, I got to go home and have a thumb through of my Darren Brown books now to write up a good per- And I'll be on the road most of uh, this week, so that's why I'm kind of giving the bulk of the show mm-hmm. to you. And I will race back next week and we will record this fabulous podcast. Well, we'll have to include that very charming letter he wrote to the 10 year old that time. That was just too sweet. Okay. See you then. Okay.